You're listening to the NASM CPT Podcast with Rick Ritchie, the official podcast of the National Academy of Sports Medicine. Welcome to the NASM CPT Podcast and Facebook Live webcast. My name is Richie, and uh, I want to welcome you and thank you for time out of your day to check out this podcast. I'm excited, but I have one of my favorite researchers just today. Uh, he, has, he has been extensive research that he's done and the work that he does with professionals, and he is author of a book that I've read through on several occasions called The Science and Development of Muscle Hypertrophy. I want to say a big shout out and a big thank you to Dr. Brad Schoenfeld. Brad, thanks for being on. My pleasure, Rick. Yeah. Um, so I guess first I really want to get to, if uh, we can just start jumping into this of it, it um, is really a question that you series of questions like this. So I'm curious, what are the most common questions that people ask you about muscle hypertrophy? Oh, boy, the most common? Um, I mean, the most common is, how do I get big? Yeah. <laughs> um, but and that's I, a thick question to break down. How do you break that down uh, in, in a short answer or kind of, uh, we're going to dig into it a little bit deeper, but if somebody just asked you that, when they raise their hand in your classroom, uh, how do you go about answering that? Well, after I tell them, pick the right parents. Um, <laughs> I like that. That's part of it. But uh, ultimately, look, it, it then starts to come down. This is where the nuances come down. And it depends upon how, how much do you want to optimize your own genetics. So to, to just get bigger and to gain muscle, basically it comes down to training hard uh, and consistently. Uh, you can do that with a very basic type of program and really not spending that much time doing it. You know, uh, two, three days a week, uh, half hour, 45 minute sessions. If you're training really hard, even single set uh, hit type sessions, you know, the high intensity training sessions, not high intensity interval, hit meaning high intensity one set to failure type of or close to failure uh, can get you a majority, a, a good amount of muscle. Now, if you then want to uh, maximize your own genetics, then that's a that's my book. <laughs> that's where that's where a textbook comes in, into play, and it's it's not a question that can be answered even in a half hour interview that we have. There's just so many nuances, and it's highly individualized too. It's not there's one one of the most important things that I, I will say and that I tell everyone is that I can't give you I can give you general guidelines. But ultimately, then it comes down to putting these guidelines into practice for yourself and using a trial and error approach to find out within those guidelines how to optimize your own genetics. What so was that leads me to a question just because of something that, that you mentioned is uh, leading up to failure uh, and whether that is um, volitional fatigue or, or actual muscular fatigue. Um, is it? Is it true that in the research we're starting to look at now more information that kind of going to the point of fatigue is really valuable, but the set range, which used to be very delineated between this is your hypertrophy set range and this is your endurance set range, um, that that you can hypertrophy kind of regardless of uh, a set range that you're looking at, or it, it's not as black and white as we once thought it was, at least? It's kind of a two-part question, but... Uh, I'll kind of uh, gauge both of them that first that is true that there is no hypertrophy range that often uh, elusive or, or uh, talked about uh, eight to 12 reps for hypertrophy has 
I don't want to say it's been debunked per se because it's an effective range to train in, but you can gain muscle across a very wide span of repetition ranges. Uh, anything from your know, one RM up to 40, you know, 40 repetitions and even potentially some more, but very, very high reps, 30, 40 reps per set, as long as you are taking those close to failure, you know, as long as you are uh, sufficiently challenged, if they're, if you're doing like that Tracy Anderson workout with pink dumbbells, then that's not what we're talking about here, but using lighter loads where you're really pushing yourself on those last couple reps. I will say that for the, um, for the very low repetitions, so like the very heavy loads, your one, two, and three reps, while you certainly can build muscle, it's not an effective or an efficient way to do it because you have to do a lot more sets to make up for the volume load. There's just not enough volume, so you'd have to do a lot more sets. It puts a lot of stress on the joints uh, when you're doing very heavy loads for, for high volumes. So generally speaking, you'd be looking at five reps, six reps plus up to 30 or so or more. And so that's question number one. So certainly, yes, you can gain muscle doing large amounts of, of or wide variations of repetitions. As far as going to failure, it does seem that the higher reps, it become, the higher the repetition range, the more important it becomes to at least come close to failure. I am still not convinced in the literature, uh, we have a meta-analysis and review that should be coming out soon, which does not really show a true benefit to going to all-out failure. Uh, uh, now, there are limitations to the research. I still do think in working with a lot of high-level bodybuilders that perhaps as you get really close to your genetic potential that it might become more important. We don't have literature on those types of, of trainees, so the really uh, experienced trainees. But I think uh, for the vast majority of people, you need to go close to failure, at least on some of the sets. Uh, taking them to a repetition in reserve, so an RIR, if you're familiar with that concept, that's how, how many reps short of failure you are, of one or two reps short of failure probably. But again, it, it is also then the nuances depend upon the loading range. Is it a three or five, or is it, let's say five or a seven rep range? Is it a 10 or 12 rep range, or is it a 20 or 30 rep range? As I said, as you start going higher and higher with your rep range, comes more important to get closer to failure. Gotcha. Um, you had also mentioned high intensity interval training. Uh, I think that probably most people associate that with kind of uh, metabolic expenditure and they're going to, to burn a lot of calories in a short amount of time and it's very good for weight loss. But uh, are we seeing then that there's uh, a correlation between doing the high intensity interval training and hypertrophy as well? Um. If you are an untrained individual, that is, uh, that would be the case, that there is okay. some evidence that using higher intensity aerobic work will lead to uh, hypertrophy. It seems to top out fairly quickly over the first few months, after several months, and, then, and it seems also more specific to the type one fibers because of the, uh, again, you are really not achieving it's more, a lot of it is more cardiorespiratory failure than it is the muscle failure in that right. we're challenging the muscles. So it's not real depletion of the, you know, fatigue locally that's causing the fatigue. It's more cardiovascular fatigue. If, if we then get into what happens at the muscle, um, and maybe this is just a bit more physiology, but if you could speak to it, what actually happens 
on the muscular level that leads to hypertrophy? Are we looking at, um, is it mechanical stress? Is it muscle damage? Is it metabolic stress? Is it a combination? Is it neural? Is it hormonal? Um, kind of what do all of these different components play into hypertrophy? So I'm not sure how deep you want to get here, but uh, <laughs> simplify a uh, concept, a complex process, and you can then take it from there if you want me to expand on it. But uh, sure. basically, the mechanical forces are uh, transformed, transduced. It's, it's called mechanotransduction. So mechanical forces are transformed into chemical signals. Uh, and basically, the at the muscle cell, there are these sensors. Uh, they're called integrins. There are others, too. But... These sensors, they're mechanosensors, and they convert, they sense these mechanical signals, they then work to convert them into these chemical signals. And there's an intracellular signaling cascade, which is a series of enzymes that basically take, you have upstream enzymes, which are your higher level, and then they go all the way to downstream, where you, downstream is where protein synthesis occurs, and that's the muscle building process. Mm-hmm. One of the enzymes is called mTOR, which you might be, and many people might be familiar with, that is a molecular nodal point, one of the um, enzymes within the intracellular signaling cascade. Uh, it's a mid-level, uh, it's kind of in between up and downstream. And uh, there are other series, so basically it's a, uh, it's a cascade, it's a series of these enzymatic um, uh, initiatives. And there are multiple pathways that lead to mTOR, and then there are also, it's believed mTOR independent uh, cascades even. So even without mTOR, while it will blunt some of the hypertrophy. So again, I, I just want to point out how complex this cascade is. Sure. And you start asking about, is muscle damage involved? So obviously the mechanical forces are your driving force uh, because the forces are what are converted. But our other factors, really, I think that's where uh, what's the more interesting question is, is metabolic stress involved? Is uh, muscle damage, is hypoxia and other factors and the truth is, we're just not sure. There is certainly some evidence that points to it, but you figure we can send men to the moon at this point, and we'd know exactly how to figure out what makes muscle grow, and uh, we're still far from really having a full understanding. Uh, there is certainly uh, evidence that there is effects of muscle damage and metabolic stress, but there also is some evidence that there's not, or that it's minimal, and whether it happens and to the extent that it does occur, isn't clear, and what is clear is that the driving force is your mechanical forces, and everything else would be additive to that. And of course, you kind of mentioned uh, chronic hormonal levels. So if you're a very low, like if a male has very low testosterone levels, if you're a male and your T levels, or if you're hypogonadal, uh, let's say especially what happens in elderly men, but if your testosterone levels, let's say 100 nanograms per deciliter, when your base levels, normal levels are 300, and generally, Normal is somewhere 500, 600. You're going to have a tough time growing muscle. So there's other, certainly other factors we do know get involved there. And and of course, we one of the the elephant in the room we haven't touched on is nutrition. So that was my next question. You need uh, obviously sufficient protein is essential if you're deficient in protein. Well, that's going to be an issue. And calories themselves, if you are not taking in sufficient calories, so if you're in a caloric deficit, it's harder to grow muscle. Uh, and and that really speaks to kind of a the the surplus of protein is what most people think of, but 
you're kind of adding to that and it's not just an extra you know surplus of of protein and we kind of looked at what the research is is interesting because it's kind of what bodybuilders have been saying from since since I was born which is eat the amount of, of grams per body weight uh, uh, in pounds, right? Uh, and there's a conversion where it's kind of grams to kilograms, right? So it ends up being if you're a 175 pound male, you would have up to 175 grams per protein. Is that is that what the research is pointing to right now? That's correct. So it's somewhere between 1.6 to 2.2 grams per kilogram. Now there's 2.2 kilograms in a, in a pound. So okay. 2.2 kilograms per uh, Pound, um, 2.2 grams per kilogram is the same thing as a gram per pound. Yeah. Uh, do you actually need that much? That's still not clear. It partially or at least seemingly will depend upon how hard you're training, uh, what stressors in your life and other factors. It could be a little bit lower. Uh, generally, my recommendations for uh, people who really want to maximize muscle mass are between 0.8 to 1.0 grams per pound. So let's say if you're 200 pounds, would be a minimum of let's say 160 grams and up to 200. And when you start getting over one gram per pound, it probably doesn't make much, if any difference, that your body cannot store excess protein. It's basically just gonna oxidize it for energy. So okay. uh, it's kind of wasted protein at that point. Gotcha, and eating that much protein at some point, at least I remember in college, it was like, Man, if I have to eat another can of tuna, or if I have to, <laughs> like, just trying trying to take in protein can be an arduous process within itself. Well, so that's an, another interesting point. So that is definitely true, and that is why if your goal is weight loss, getting more protein could potentially help you to lose weight because it can make you less hungry. It basically can blunt your appetite. So there is a at least a theory that if you want to have higher amounts of protein uh, if you're, uh, and there also is some evidence that in, in a caloric deficit, you might need slightly more even than a gram per pound if you wanna hold on to your muscle. It's still somewhat equivocal, but certainly it is difficult to eat protein, uh, a lot of protein. So yeah, if you wanna lose weight, it's a good, uh, consuming more protein is a good strategy. Gotcha. Um, what are, is there a recommendation uh, or at least some evidence that supports what is the other kind of distribution of macronutrients that you would take in? Not really. Um, okay. To me, nutrition, so I would say that you need, you have, fats are essential. So carbohydrates aren't essential. Uh, now, just because they're not essential doesn't mean they're not beneficial. That's another, right. it's like your keto uh, proponents will say, well, carbs aren't essential. So no, just because something is an essential doesn't mean they might not be beneficial. And there's certain, again, I know we don't have time in this short interview to go into, but there's certainly reasons why having some carbohydrate intake is going to fuel performance, uh, especially anaerobic performance. Uh, your B vitamins are largely in, um, in carbohydrates. Uh, fiber is in carbohydrates. So, anyway, but what I would say is can you be on a keto diet? It's not for me, but yeah, it's a viable diet. I would also say that if you want to maximize muscle gain, a keto diet probably is not your ideal diet. You can do, you can gain muscle, but if looking to maximize for a bodybuilder, it's probably not uh, optimal because again, you're going to have low glycogen stores and thus your performance. And that's been shown pretty well in the literature. 
But I'm a proponent basically of, of the other macros. As long, as long as you get your essential fats, which are your polyunsaturates, uh, so your omega-6, omega-3s, particularly important are your omega-3s, uh, which are in fish oil, flax seeds, and so yeah. on, and seeds. But uh, the real importance of these fats are, are that basically omega-6 and omega-3 have this yin and yang relationship for inflammatory, anti-inflammatory properties. And it's just harder to get your omega-3s. Your omega-6 are more readily available in most foods. But anyway, I mean, if you get uh, 20% of your calories from fat or so, and that'll depend upon how many calories you're eating, the rest of the uh, difference really is up to the person. Right? For me, eating uh, diet comes down to adherence. And if yeah. uh, you can tell someone what to eat, if they don't want to eat that, if it's not within their tastes and their their likes, um, it's not going to happen. So I say kind of go with a whole food diet for the most part. You can stick to 80% whole foods. And whether you want to eat more fats or carbs, you know, kind of uh, base it on your own preferences. And your own if you see your performance sucks in the gym and it's harder to gain muscle, well, you know, you got to decide, do I really want to gain the muscle? Maybe add in some carbs. Right. Um so let, let me ask a few other questions. I think these are, are valuable questions that have come up on a regular basis to me. So I'm going to pose them to you and then we'll go over to Greg and see who's listening live and what questions are there. Um, one of them is about uh, kind of a, a spike in um, just the, the, the world around this blood flow restriction um, what are some of the science behind it and how on earth does that relate to personal trainers or is that something that personal trainers can be familiar with but never actually employ? Well, I, I think both. I, so I think it's both. Uh, I think certainly they should be familiar with it. Whether they choose to employ it or not will be up to, is it essential? No. Uh, can it be a tool? I, I always hate to use cliches like tool in the toolbox, but I mean, you know, basically these are tools or, or exercises are our tools just like a uh, carpenter uses a hammer and a nail, we use exercises. And blood flow restriction training has some very interesting um, science behind it. And there's been a lot of work I've carried out, I've collaborated and carried out a lot of work on this. We just published um, a paper on, on its use in bodybuilding, just in the NSCA journal. Mm -hmm. Can I say NSCA on this podcast? You can. Okay. <laughs> the, uh, I, I ascribe to their journal as well, so it's good. <laughs> journal, which just published on uh, its use for physique athletes, bodybuilders. But essentially, um, so there are some limitations. That the, uh, for those who don't know, blood flow restriction training is where you use a cuff and you put it proximal to the muscle. So basically, it only can, only can be used for the extremities for the most part, so your arms and your legs. And if you'd want to, let's say, get your biceps, you'd put it right at the deltoid level and you would inflate the cuff um, generally between 140 to 160, uh, 180 millimeters of mercury. And there is certain, uh, there is some research on how, how much pressure should be applied. That's still coming into play. But anyway, basically the idea is to cut off or, or to impede, I don't know, maybe cut off some to impede the arterial flow to the muscle, but um, allow blood flow, uh, I'm sorry, allow the arterial flow into the muscle, but impede the back flow, yeah. uh, the venous return. So um, basically it's, it's a way of creating a, a hypoxic environment uh, in the muscle. And uh, it's been shown to 
uh, enhance hypertrophy similar to, so if you, and it's used like, you use very light loads, generally 20 to 30% of your one RM. And there's evidence that um, using very light loads with, um, with this restriction for 15 to 20 reps or so can get you hypertrophy similar to heavy load training. And why is that important? Well, I mean, first of all, they seem to have different mechanisms at play. And there is some evidence that you might be able to increase type one fiber hypertrophy uh, vis-a-vis type two, and that might be beneficial certainly for bodybuilders or physique athletes, and perhaps for endurance athletes as well, that might be a plus. Um, there also seems to be uh, different mechanistic factors. So it's possible that combining uh, blood flow restriction training with traditional training might have a synergistic effect. And finally, uh, it's a very nice strategy for um, injury. So if you've been injured and you need to use lighter loads uh, without using a ton of reps, which can be for a lot of, let's say you can use light loads to failure at 40 reps. If you do blood flow restriction training, you could cut that down to let's say 15 to 20 reps. So basically cut it in half the number of reps and make it a lot more, uh, I don't want to say enjoyable, but certainly less onerous of, of those repetitions. Um, I guess the reason I was kind of concerned and, and drawing maybe a little trepidation leading into that is because I just don't want personal trainers to hear how beneficial it can be and uh, and then just start tourniqueting people's arms. And so there's actually been some new research showing that uh, wrapping a tourniquet around the muscle probably it, because, yeah, it's hard to know exactly uh, how much pressure to apply. And there was usually, there was an old um, gauge that they used to say using a, uh, a pain tolerance of roughly a seven on a scale of 10. So if it's, if you feel like it's strangling you, that's a 10. And if you're, you don't feel anything, that's a one. And you should be seven where it's somewhere in between, you know, you're feeling it. But the accuracy of that has been questioned. The good thing is, is they now are having, um, actual units that are being sold and there are a couple hundred, but so they're coming way down in price. The old Katsu units where they do the research yeah. are 5,000 plus dollars, but they now are selling these portable units. So there's a couple of, uh, some a company just sent me one. I, I don't want to make this like it's a plug, but I mean, it worked very well. So I'm not going to mention their name, uh, cause I'm not looking, I'm not a show for that or anything, but I will say if people want to research it, there, there are units out there. And uh, they, uh, it worked well. I mean, it uh, basically you inflate it, and it uh, it hones in on your own blood pressure and sets the pressure for you. And I think the sale price was like $199 or something like that. So, so it's becoming much more feasible. The point here is that it's becoming a lot more feasible for use in a personal training setting. Oh, all right, right. But by the way, another point that I should make is it also, given our situation um, now, I definitely would uh, would push trainers more towards the purchase of something like that versus uh, grabbing some some bands or or tubing and trying to to create tourniquets. So I, I think it's probably a better way of of gauging and um, something that I don't know if personal trainers consider as much as they should, which is uh, um, you know our job ultimately is keeping people safe while exercising and providing results. So um, 
if if you're not familiar with it, and my my suggestion is don't just go out there and start tourniqueting and and restricting and potentially occluding blood flow. So I think that uh, the the science behind it's really good, and you and several other people have done some brilliant stuff. And um, but but there are some wonderful machines and um, kind of supporting tools that allow for people to to employ such things, which I think is a good idea. Well, I um, agree with that, Nick, but I, I would go into, oh, sorry, go ahead. Can you hear me? Yeah, so I, I would say I would agree with that, but that's no different than, I, you shouldn't be teaching, or not you, but a personal trainer shouldn't be teaching a squat or a deadlift or a Turkish getup if they don't know how to perform it. So you never want to just say, all right, I hear about blood flow restriction, so I'm gonna tie something onto someone. Yes, you need to do your diligence anytime. If you're a trainer, you are responsible for your client and you need to use proper, above all, do no harm. So you need to use, uh, take all precautions and make sure that you're fully uh, versed in what what it entails and how to go about using it before you employ that tool. Just like a carpenter isn't going to go use a saber saw if he doesn't know how to use the saber saw, I would hope, cut off his hand. That's That's a good analogy. Um, I want to ask maybe just a, a couple more questions before we go to the people. Um, one is um, just a, can you just touch briefly on, um, I had heard somebody say that time under tension is dead. Is that in a fact or is that um, hyperbole? No, that's definitely hyperbole. I mean, so I, I, I don't even know what context someone would say that in. What I would say is, is what I think is maybe, and maybe this was the point, what I think is more challenge is the um, question, is there an ideal time under tension of a given set? And I think that is much more in question. Uh, I think that the question then becomes, certainly there's a time under tension for a session for, let's say, a muscle group. But as I mentioned, let's say you're doing three reps, okay? Let's say you're doing a three RM, and that, how long would that take to do a three RM? Eight seconds, eight seconds, 10 seconds, maybe yeah. that versus a, uh, a set of 12 reps. How long would that take? Well, if it's, let's say a one, two tempo, 30 seconds, 30, 35 seconds or so, 40 seconds, 30, 40. So that's your range. But then what if you're doing seven sets of three? So that's your time under tension for that. So let's say if you're doing three sets of 10, that's 90 seconds. If you're doing seven sets of three, uh, let's say 10 sets, or that's ten, or eight sets of three, it's 80 seconds, you're gonna get the same time under tension for that given exercise. And we actually have done work on that. My, dis, my doctoral dissertation work was on that exact topic and we show no difference in hypertrophy. So I think the question then becomes if you do it, if you're keeping muscles under tension for a given period of time for a given session, that really is probably more relevant that I, I do not think that there is a, uh, that set should be looked at that you have an ideal time under tension for a given set. And also the lighter loads, uh, the time under tension of your first rep, let's say, let's say you're doing 30 reps versus 10 reps. Well, the first rep of a 10 RM is gonna be a lot more taxing, if you will, than the first rep of a 30 RM, right? The first rep of a 30 RM, you don't even basically feel what you're lifting. So the time under tension, again, is not really relevant in that respect because you're not equating the actual uh, tension. You're just equating a time that the muscle, but what is the actual quality of the tension? So it's a more nuanced, again, these are 
people tend to oversimplify these types of things when they're much more nuanced. And we need to, I think one of the issues in fitness is everyone wants the buzz term, like time under tension is a cool buzz term and an easy concept to understand, but no one wants to dig into the details and really explore the nuances that are critical to, to making determinations. Yeah, thank you for that. That's, uh, that provides quite a bit of clarity. Um, I think I have one more question, and then I'd like for, uh, if you've got time, then uh, let's, uh, we'll have Greg read some, some questions. Um, but I want to talk to you, and we, we talk about this a little bit, but coming from you, I think it would be valuable. Um, linear versus undulating versus any other types of periodization regarding hypertrophy. What are some of the best results that, that are seen? Yeah, I, I mean, there's very, so the, if you're asking about research, very little research uh, on that and very little evidence that one is superior to another. There might be, we just have no evidence of it. And I tend to not really look in those terms. What I would say is, if you're looking to, to use periodization for optimizing uh, hypertrophy, or let's say a bodybuilding or physique show, you obviously want to do a reverse linear because you don't want to end with a power phase if your goal is to maximize hypertrophy. So just the placement of it, is it superior in the overall context? Well, I mean, it would depend when your measurement is, but uh, if you're measuring hypertrophy at the end of a strength phase, it would not be, tend to not be superior. So I would say that uh, periodization is a concept, not a de defined uh, way of going about things. Like people talk about periodization as if there's one way to periodize. Reverse periodization would just mean that you're, putting the hypertrophy phase at the end rather than at the beginning, the traditional periodization. But uh, I would say that there's a gazillion different ways, if that's an actual word, to carry out periodization. And uh, really the, um, the way you go about planning, because periodization is basically structured planning, a systematic way of planning your sessions. How you go about planning can be done in so many different ways, and there's many different ways to optimize hypertrophy. So uh, we do not have great literature on, on periodization in general, and certainly for hypertrophy. So I couldn't give an evidence-based answer if that's what you're after. Thank you. All right. Well, I appreciate that. I appreciate it. Um, let's go to Greg. Are there any questions that have popped up from the listeners of that regarding our subject today for Brad? Yeah, uh, you guys answered a lot of them, but there was one in particular uh, from Fitness Vita that Brad mentioned various ways of gaining muscle all the way from the low to high rep spectrum. Is there a I'm having a hard time hearing you. Can you? Yeah. Uh, can you guys hear me now? Is that better? A little. Come so, again? So, so, uh, so Brad uh, mentioned Brad various mentioned ways of gaining muscle all the way from the low to high rep spectrum. Reps. Is this is there a certain way a certain that is way better for different populations, i.e., an athlete versus someone uh, looking to improve their health? Did you hear Nick? I, I couldn't make out what he. Yeah, I was having a hard time hearing uh, from from the beginning of the call, so I, I missed most of that. Uh, I heard about high reps and an athlete, but I wasn't sure of the specifics of that. Yeah, and Greg, if you want to text me that question or hold it up, and I can. I can uh, go another direction with uh, with this, and then we'll still get it. And if you have some follow-up questions with that. Um, hey, Brad, so one of the questions I have, I think it's kind of interesting, is that um, I do think there's probably a certain rep range where type 2 muscle fibers are certainly more engaged. And 
Um, and these kind of hypertrophic ranges that can go from, you know, uh, whatever, these kind of six reps to 40 reps that we had talked about before, um, certainly don't involve those muscle fibers as much. So when we get into hypertrophy, are we seeing in these rep ranges mostly type one muscle fibers or are they type two muscle fibers as we get closer to fatigue where the, the other muscle fibers jump in? What, what's going on there? So it's interesting that you ask that. Um, the literature has been somewhat mixed on that topic. Uh, some, there are some studies that do show fiber type specific differences with your type one fibers being more preferential to high rep training and your type two to lower rep training. Uh, others have not shown that. And we just carried out a study. Now we did not look at fiber types per se. It was just published a couple of days ago. Uh, but we looked at the soleus muscle right. versus the uh, gastroc. And what was shown was that the soleus and gastroc, soleus is a slow twitch muscle, it's 80% slow twitch fibers, did not respond differently to high versus low rep training, which you would figure if there was, then it would have a better response to higher reps. So um, it still remains questionable, but uh, I'm becoming more skeptical. Yeah. does it did you have a, another question yeah i'm getting this one from uh from greg i'm downloading the the question right now but it is taking a moment so what what i assume is happening brad is that uh in order to keep my children quiet in our apartment <laughs> is that we have every single kid on a device right now and i have three of them and i'm sure my wife is on a device as well it's taken a little bit longer for me to to download this material um but the question is coming in sorry greg um oh one of the questions that i wanted to ask it's a few seconds away is this this idea, uh, as, as you know, for, um, I'm, I'm a relative fan of recovery. And there's this concept of supercompensation where, you know, you work out and then you go into this catabolic state and then you go uh, above your kind of regular homeostatic training state into kind of this anabolic state that goes above. And is, is it's... I don't know. It seems to be theoretical, but it also seems to make a great deal of sense. Um, how valuable is the recovery that people do and how valuable is it that they get that workout in kind of at the peak of that anabolic state? Well, so the first question, recovery is huge. And obviously, uh, if you're under recovered, you're going to not grow properly. As to what constitutes um, optimal recovery is a very elusive question. And I, I think that, that there's so many factors that go into it, both um, genetic, lifestyle, a combination of genetics and lifestyle, and age is going to enter into it as well. So uh, I, I can't give you a one-size-fits-all one answer to that, just to say that recovery is extremely important. And I, I don't think we also can look at it as a one answer uh, in terms of that this is the way it should be across the training protocol because you can right. you can look at it in blocks. There can be periods where you are over 
you are under-recovered, but it actually potentially can promote greater supercompensation. Let's say you're, uh, you push your body, you overstress it for a very short, let's say a week or two weeks, you might be able to go under-recovered, but spur an overcompensation, supercompensation. So those are things that we, uh, we still need more insights into. Yeah, yeah, I'm here. Um, sorry, just cut out for a moment. I've got the question that Greg sent. So, um, and and we'll do this one. Uh, it said Brad mentioned various ways of gaining muscle, all the way from the low to high rep spectrum. Is there a certain way that is better for different populations? For instance, an athlete versus someone who's looking to improve their health. Uh, I'll also add in there, is there a difference between uh, a male and a female when it comes to, to hypertrophy training, that kind of rep scheme? Uh, I would not necessarily say, let's say we're talking an athlete, probably the hypertrophy aspect would not be uh, as relevant there, but certainly the principle of specificity of training with high reps for a endurance, muscle endurance athlete. So if you're, let's say a row, let's say you do crew, uh, where you're, you're looking for muscle, local muscle endurance, I'm not talking cardiovascular endurance, but local muscle endurance of the, let's say upper extremities using a higher rep range would potentially help in that respect. Whereas if you are a shot putter doing heavier loads and more explosive training with some lighter loads also would be more beneficial for that. I mean, doing 20, 30 reps as a, as a power lifter, certainly, or as a, a shot putter doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, from a health perspective, I don't think we can say that one necessarily has a better health outcome than another. I would just say that for those who, let's say, have osteoarthritis, uh, it would be a, a benefit to use lighter loads in general that you're going to you're going to put less joint stress on. And just in general, I think using, at least mixing in some of the lighter loads will facilitate recovery. So uh, you know, recovery of the joints, not uh, neuromuscular, but joint-related recovery. And that, uh, thus, I would say that at the very least, even with, let's say, power lifters, mixing in uh, what I would call deload-type phases with higher reps would be a smart choice. Okay. All right, Greg. Do we have uh, do we have any other questions that are coming up? And, and Brad, I'm sorry. I want to respect your time too. Um, let's do uh, let's do this. I do have a question for you. How during this time has uh, has school been working and still going on for you? Are you still teaching classes online? Is that uh, yeah, Is that so, still happening? So all our courses have shifted to an online format, um, which is challenging. Uh, because we went from a purely, we integrate online content throughout the semester, but it's basically an in-class in uh, course load. And so, yeah, they've all shifted to uh, online, which is stressful for the, the professor as well as the students. Uh, so that's been, it's been challenging, but uh, we're getting through it. And also my research, any interpersonal research has come to a grinding halt. So I had a study that was halfway through and we had to, Basically, the entire study was ditched. It was 500, oh, 500 hours of uh, work lost. So, uh, 
I didn't even think about that. What I would say is, is that many others are going through a lot worse than I. So I do have perspective on this and I, uh, I'm thankful for what I have at least. And I'm very sobered as to what's going on in the world. So uh, I'll get through it. Um, it's, uh, challenging forever. It is. It is indeed. Well, uh, I want to say thank you. I know that you're you're probably spending a lot of time learning new skill sets like video editing and screen recording and things like that. So uh, uh, thank you. I, I I hope the best for all the students at Lehman College that that you're able to still get their heads filled with uh, all the knowledge that you've got and uh, their muscles filled with all the sarcomeres they can fit in there. So, uh, I'm going to do, again, a shout out to at least one of your books that I have, The Science and Development of Muscle Hypertrophy. Excellent book. Great research. If um, uh, Is there a way that people can follow you, contact, reach out, um, you know, as social handles, anything like that that you'd like to share? Yeah, I mean, I'm all over social. First of all, the, the textbook you're talking about, the second edition, will, will it just I just got my advanced copy, but it'll come out next month. So the second edition, it's over four years since it came out but um so yeah check that one out and uh i'm all over social media Insta you could just search for me on instagram or facebook or twitter those are the three that i use and uh if you go if you google me or if you search for me on any of the platforms you'll find me all right if we look for you we'll find you right. uh Dr. Brad Schoenfeld, thank you so much for your time, your knowledge, your expertise, and for sharing that with us. I appreciate it. Again, thank you for listening. My name is Rick Ritchie, and this is the NASM CT Podcast. Thank you.